0: morning what i want to do is set our hearts and minds for the ecclesia conference this weekend to kind of think about in light of the difficulty we've just gone through in light of all the pressures it is important in this season that we look at the subject of suffering the lord has uniquely prepared our hearts for this very topic at this time In fact, he has so uniquely prepared our hearts that some have come up to me and said, well, next year, can you preach on prosperity (laughs) so the Lord can prepare us? It is in the midst of all of this, again, we recognize that the Lord is uniquely working And there are, this week, as we think about this subject this morning, I'm just going to kind of prime the pump and set a big picture in regards to the suffering here. But this week, in the conference, we're going to cover topics like uh, physical suffering or suffering loss or lies we believe in the midst of suffering or Christ is the example of a suffering servant who helps us in the midst of our suffering. We're going to look at suffering for righteousness and so many different angles we're going to look at this particular topic it is a rich topic the topic of suffering so just this morning I hope just to kind of create an appetite for you and if you haven't signed up you better all right there's a book entitled what about evil in it Scott Christensen frames up the modern struggle with evil when he says this. Here's what he says. He says, Secularism has de-godded God and domesticated our age in order to magnify every mundane and ignoble feature of our creatureliness above the Creator. He says, We have gerrymandered, and to gerrymander is to redraw Political boundary lines, it would typically happen if you were a Republican or a Democrat and you wanted to redraw the boundaries to your favor, that would be gerrymandering. He says, we have gerrymandered the world as if designed for our own insipid gratification and no longer for God's glory. It is inconceivable that any kind of God would create a world whereby our personal happiness is not his highest goal. It shocks us, especially in the Western world, more than any previous generation, that such conditions could exist to strip us of our self-defined bliss. There's so much in this statement, and I just want to unpack it for us as we begin. There is a war against God There is a war to de-God God, God, to take God off his throne and to put man's desires, man's wants on the throne. A war that, of course, man cannot win, but a war that he fights against. He wants to dethrone God. And this war drives secular thought to uh, domesticate our age. We want to Slowly conform people to think about themselves absent of God. Who speaks for God in this age without being ridiculed. Who defends God without being slandered. Who will give an account for God and be heard in this age. The secular world around us is training everyone to think absent of God. In fact, They're trying to even abandon logic, knowledge, truth, and justice altogether so that man's passions can rule and man's desires can be the foremost. As Christensen highlights, the goal of this is to magnify every mundane and ignoble feature of our creatureliness above the Creator. Man's pleasures, man's wants, man's desires become the most important pursuit What you feel right now, what you desire right now, is the most important pursuit. As Christensen stated, we have gerrymandered the world as if designed for our own insipid gratification and no longer for God's glory. Everything is taken and reworked away from God, away from an understanding about God, away from the purposes of God, to man's greatest desire. Redefine government, being there to protect our self-interest, to provide for us. Government is there to give us resources so we can continue to be happy. Redefine family to justify the activities of a minority. To redefine church as a place where we go to for self-help and encouragement. To redefine schools as places to shape new ideologies. All of this subtly rearranges life so that God is ridden out of the equation and man is prominent. His desires, his wants are the most important. God's glory, God's work, God's holiness is erased. The gratification of man becomes the most important pursuit, to which the culminating thought in this whole paragraph is this, it is inconceivable that any kind of God would create a world whereby our personal happiness is not his highest goal. The God who is worshipped is the God who works to protect our happiness. That's the God of today. The God that is worshipped today. Is a God who must preserve our happiness, our pleasure, our delight. That is the king we will serve. That is the king of secular society. A God who will work at giving us entertainment and pleasure and delight. That's what he is for. And any, of course, preacher who comes along and makes people happy is exalted in that age. And anyone who comes along and encourages is lifted up in that age. They become the prophets of this age because they bring the message that man wants to hear. fact, the greatest evil to this society is anyone or any message that keeps pleasure from people. That's the greatest evil evil. How can God not be concerned with our pleasure, goes the secular mind? Why does God, the God of the Bible, come across as so hard, so indifferent, so separated from us? Why? Because man's desires and God's desires are not on the same page. As the scriptures say, God says, my thoughts are higher than Your thoughts and my ways are higher than your ways, declares the Lord. The mind of man will not naturally lead to the mind of God. The mind of man will not exalt God or lift up God. The mind of man will replace God with his own pleasures. So the natural man is in his mind twisting the word of God to present a God that they like, they appreciate, a God that is presented for the greatest glory of humanity rather than a God who is drawing his creation to himself. So while the world is shocked, again, that God is not after their highest and greatest pleasure, God's creation is at work naturally accomplishing his perfect design. While man wars against God and the natural mind is bent away from God and the God of this world is blinding the hearts of people, God in his creation is working accordingly to demonstrate the riches of his glory. You can look around and you can see this. God may appear to be cold and indifferent, but that is only to the person who has his own pleasure as the ultimate goal or actually what god demonstrates in his creation is the overabundant expression of his mercy and love to all here's the catch we live in a world system that makes the pleasure of man the highest good and in this system suffering is the greatest evil that's the world we live in suffering is seen as the worst evil the the thing that is incongruent with the natural mind no one can suffer no one can face difficulties and if we're honest In the times of our personal struggles, we have a hard time defending God when we're suffering or we see someone we love suffering. It's hard for us. Hard for us to defend God in the midst of that. Hard for us to rejoice always. Hard for us to speak up. This is because we don't understand suffering very well. We subtly. Embrace a worldly ideology which sees suffering as a greater evil than sin. That is the struggle. For the natural man, this is what he has embraced. The worst sin is suffering. In fact, it would be then worse to suffer than it would, would be to actually sin. I've seen this demonstrated in so many different ways. Recently, Listen, there have been, even just this last year, great scandals in denominations. I don't have to go into the details of those. You could find all the details. But there have been great scandals within denominations. And at the root of those scandals was this. Unwillingness to address sin because we didn't want to suffer loss of reputation. Because one didn't want to take on the difficulty of suffering loss. They avoided scandal, only to cause it to continue on longer and longer. Suffering itself has become worse than sin itself in the natural heart and mind of man. That's the problem. Natural man tries to de-God God. And the natural religious man holds on to worldly ideologies, trying to defend those ideologies, thinking that they're protecting God, and they're trying to avoid suffering altogether. And in the midst of that, they move away from God, away from God's natural design, away from what God's purposes are in suffering and how God uses suffering, not only for our protection and good, but also for His glory. And that's what we want to capture. We want to understand how it is that God uses suffering and what He does within the context of suffering that protects us. In God's design, He has designed that the fruit of evil is suffering. Victims of crimes suffer. Perpetrators of crimes, when they're caught, face judgment and they suffer suffer. Suffering is the fruit of abandoning God and moving away from righteousness. It is within God's providential design that when mankind in his creation moves away from him, they face suffering and difficulty. Suffering then manifests the great wisdom of God It is a tool of mercy to warn of the consequences of wickedness and it is a means of grace to supercharge the growth of our faith. It is used on both ends. It both warns the sinner that he is moving away from God and pending judgment is coming and it is used as a means of of encouraging our faith so that we are growing and maturing. In God's design, suffering for the godless is again the worst evil but for the righteous and for the godly suffering is a means of great encouragement because from it the quality of our faith is tested and the growth of our faith is manifested this is what we must see this morning i just want to give you maybe six different ways to look at suffering Three of them will spend an extended amount of time, and the last three will just move fast because we don't have a lot of time. These, three, these six ways are just perspectives to help set our hearts and minds to think carefully about suffering so that we understand it properly because we're not going to understand it by looking around at the voices around us. We must understand it from God's vantage point. And again, it won't be exhaustive, but it will kind of set a framework for us. And then the rest of this week in our conference, uh, various pastors will minister to us and expand out and fill out our understanding in these areas. So here's the first vantage point of suffering. Suffering is God's PA system. Suffering, or we could say like this, suffering is God's megaphone. It gets the sinner's attention... And it gives testimony to the work of God among his people. Two ways in which suffering works. To announce God's message. It is God's public announce system. It is the warning system. Suffering is there to warn us of pending danger. It's there to warn that difficulties are coming. Notice, Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says in 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, speaking about the context of suffering, we can just uh, notice verse 14 through 17 just to kind of flow into this context. Verse 14, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now notice here's the key, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Suffering is the reminder of God's pending judgments. Suffering is there to warn of great difficulty. Yes, you experience a little difficulty now, great difficulty comes in future judgment. Suffering works to draw our attention to that the particular behavior one is practicing falls under God's judgment. It helps the sinner. Suffering helps The sinners see that they have departed from the way of God. That they're moving away from God. They're abandoning God and his purposes and ways. And as they abandon God and move away from God, increased suffering comes. This means then, suffering acts as a means of God's mercy to us. Not as an evil, but actually an extension of his mercy to warn us of difficulties. There is suffering associated with the practice of evil. That's what you see in the scriptures over and over again. You look at Genesis chapter 3, the fall of Adam and Eve, an immediate that was terror and fear in their hearts when they hid from God. You see suffering. We move into chapter 4 of Genesis with Cain killing his brother Abel. You see the despair and the hopelessness that he was in when his sin was ruling in his heart. All through the scriptures where you see sin ruling, you see suffering and difficulty coming. Judas himself, betraying Christ, tried to fix his wrong by giving back the money, cannot find peace and end up taking his own life. Sin brings despair. Sin brings suffering. Suffering demonstrates the guilty heart and a guilty conscience. So that suffering then is used by God as a warning system. It's used to get the sinner's attention. So that when one suffers, when one experiences the difficulties, when one experiences the, the consequences of departing from God, and it comes out in emotional distress or even physical distress, that is an early warning system just like the check engine light on your car or the gas light that comes on in your car to warn you of impending danger to come, so is suffering. Suffering acts as God's warning system, and that's why suffering is around the world. So is the world's warning system that they are departing from God, abandoning Him, and they need to turn back. It's designed by God that the unrighteous are departing from Him and departing from His blessing and from His protection. So then, in this, God uses suffering as this announcement, the announcement to all people. It's interesting, in the midst of that, someone might say, well, you know, Pastor, you're sounding a little bit like a fire and brimstone preacher here. Pounding and thumping the pulpit, trying to scare us into repentance. And I would say that might be true, but you still have to answer for the problem of suffering. There is real suffering in the world, there are real difficulties, and that real suffering is a demonstration. As Peter says here, verse 4 and Chapter 4, verse 17 Judgment begins with the household of God. The people of God face judgment first, face suffering and difficulty first, and then comes the rest. There is suffering again, then acts as a PA system to the world to get its attention that pending judgment is coming. Notice again, back in verse fifteen, there, First Peter four, that he says, "Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evil doer or troublesome meddler. That there are natural consequences for practicing evil; it would face suffering." We know this, we see this, the man's life that is destroyed when he commits adultery, losing his family, his reputation, maybe even his job, the natural consequences of suffering because he did evil. Murderers, again, have the natural consequences of their evil, thieves, etc. You practice evil, there is a consequence to practicing evil because, again, God has given government for the very purpose of Honoring the righteous and bringing the sword to bring judgment upon the unrighteous. So suffering acts as a means of getting the attention of the unrighteous. But secondly, suffering gives testimony to the work of God among his people. Suffering is, on the other side, an opportunity to expand the glory of God and make the glory of God known to all. Turn over to Philippians chapter one. I want to show you this. Philippians chapter one, verses twenty-six through thirty. Philippians one, twenty-six through thirty, it says this, or twenty-seven through thirty. It says only verse twenty seven, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and you see and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For, you, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, notice, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, is experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. Notice, as Paul sets this up, says to the philippian church god has has for your sake granted granted for christ's sake not only that you believe in him but that you also suffer for his name's sake that is your suffering your difficulties is used by god to bring glory to himself and to protect you and to show you that you're walking in the example that you ought to be walking in You're conducting yourselves in the manner of the gospel of Christ. You are preaching Christ. You are living Christ. And you are facing the sufferings that Christ himself faced. This is again then God's announcement to the whole world. That the righteous stand firm. And the righteous pursue Christ and walk in Christ. Even in the face of suffering. And suffering cannot stop them. It's an announcement. They were... As the text says, standing firm in one spirit. That is, they were of one heart and mind. They were singularly focused. They were not pulling in different directions. They had one heart and mind around the truth. They were striving for the faith of the gospel. They were believing in the message of God. They had embraced the message of Christ. They had embraced the truth. They were standing in sound orthodoxy. They had embraced the message from the Apostle Paul, and they were not alarmed by their opponents who were bringing difficulties upon them, who were opposing the truth. They weren't overwhelmed by that, alarmed by it. They weren't distracted by it. They were again focused. Over, they weren't overwhelmed by the hostility that they were facing. They endured the suffering, they endured the difficulties because they recognized God's future judgment was coming, and they were standing firm. Again, then suffering is used by God to announce to the world judgment is coming and He uses our faithfulness to do that. Our suffering for righteousness becomes God's megaphone to the world that divine punishment is near. The righteous will not back down in the face of suffering because we have the example of Christ. Christ is suffered for us. Christ has endured difficulties. Christ has navigated through life bearing the difficulties of this world. And every servant, every believer, every saint just follows in the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. We walk in his footsteps as he has gone through this world in suffering, so we too follow in his footsteps. If he had no place to lay his head, we have no higher expectations. He was mistreated. We have no other expectations to be mistreated. If we are honored at all, if we have any resources at all, it's just the overwhelming grace that God has lavished us with. That God may then, within his own wisdom, take us and lead us through a season of suffering for the very purpose of amplifying his message to the world that indeed God's ways rule. God is magnified. And his message is magnified as we endure suffering and press through it. This is interesting, again, for the wicked. For the wicked have no context at all for suffering. Suffering is the greatest evil. There's no explanation for the unrighteous to face suffering. There is no explanation for the unrighteous to head into suffering. It is meaningless. It is hostile to their ways. It is purposeless. It is the greatest evil to their ideology, and yet to us, it is an opportunity to magnify the glories of God. It's an opportunity for us to see Christ and to recognize we're walking in the footsteps of Christ. We don't avoid suffering to silence the work of God. Rather, we embrace it knowing that God is magnified through our suffering. So that's the first perspective of suffering. Suffering is the the megaphone of God. It is the PA system. But let me give you another analogy. This is a food analogy. Maybe some of the ladies will appreciate the food analogy here. And it actually tickled me a little bit. Here it is. Suffering is the fruit of evil and the vegetable of righteousness. <laughs> suffering, again, is the fruit of evil, that as one is walking in evil, is going to manifest the fruit of suffering. And I know a lot of vegetable lovers are like, hey, wait a second. Can't be that bad. But indeed. That we need to embrace suffering for its good as well. Not all suffering is bad. First, again, suffering is the consequence of departing from God. When we move away from God, we are going to face suffering. So part of the implication, when God said to Adam and Eve, Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for from it you will die, by God allowing us to continue to breathe immediately after taking of that fruit, the natural consequence is suffering. It's part of God's mercy, a sparing us from immediate death. Evil brings suffering. There's always suffering, again, in the pursuit and the practice of evil. The more one moves away, the more they're going to face suffering. The soul that sins must die Romans 8.13 We live in the flesh who must die. There is suffering for forsaking God and abandoning his ways. So the more the man moves away from God, the more he faces suffering because suffering is the fruit of practicing evil. But here's the other side of the equation that you need to see. To restore righteousness, the path is through suffering. Suffering. To restore righteousness, to get back on the right path, you have to eat your spiritual vegetables. You have to go on and embrace suffering for what it is, that very thing that God uses to bring about restoration. The path of righteousness is a path through suffering. The path to get back on God's path is to embrace Suffering. That's the side we don't often think about. But think about these verses, just to kind of set in your mind. I mean, I think about this. When Christ came into this world, he left the glories of heaven. He left the honor of heaven. He left behind the independent use of his divine attributes. He took on the limitations of human flesh. He was isolated from the Father. He was ridiculed while on earth. He didn't have the honor and the glory that was his eternally. He is now separated. He had to endure in this world under hostilities, the rejection of men, persecution. Even of his own people he was rejected. And even his own friends betrayed him. So that his life becomes the perfect example that we look to to see suffering and enduring for the sake of righteousness. To which then listen to these verses in regards to how we are to consider ourselves. Philippians 1.29 For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe but also to suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it? With patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. In 1 Peter 3.14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. In 1 Peter 3.17. For it is better if God should will it so. That you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And in Romans chapter 8, in verse 17, Paul says this If children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He's saying there, if we are heirs, We are heirs through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God ruling and reigning within us. And because we're heirs with Christ, we are indeed suffering with Him. And as we suffer with Him, we will also be glorified with Him. The point is this, that God is going to restore righteousness. And in the path of restoring righteousness, it is going to be through suffering. And which, by the way, that context in Romans 8 Starts a bit in verse 12 there, being filled with the Spirit and saying, by, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. In that context, this particular suffering is the suffering in, of pursuing personal holiness, personal righteousness. See, the evangelical world wants righteousness without personal suffering. They do not mind that Christ suffered But they fail to recognize that God's converts will also suffer. Those who are walking in Christ will also suffer for righteousness' sake, just as Jesus Christ suffered for righteousness' sake. Righteous, the fruit of suffering. Now, the fruit of evil is suffering. Suffering. We embrace suffering because we know it is used for good for us to affirm that we are heirs of eternal life and to affirm that we're walking in the example of God, but also to demonstrate the genuine hunger and thirst within God's people for righteousness that even suffering will not keep us from doing what is right. So we embrace suffering. Thirdly, Suffering is for our faith. Suffering is for our faith. Two aspects to this. First of all, it operates as a test to prove the genuineness of our faith. Suffering operates as a test to prove the genuineness of God's work in our midst. Let me show you this. Turn over to First Peter, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. verse three through seven. And while the word suffering is not in this verse, the difficulties are clearly there. Notice this, starting verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. "...to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials." What's that? He says, look, you, you're facing difficulties. You're facing distresses. God is doing this. He is protecting you and preserving you through faith for salvation to be revealed. He is at work in all of this. And while you are being tested, notice verse 7, so that the purpose or the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why all the difficulties? Why the pressures? Why are the trials? Why are these things coming so that your faith will be proven? It's the proof of your faith. You belong to God. You are his. You endured through the difficulties, you endured through the pressures, you endured through the ridicules, you endured through the sufferings, that you demonstrated that you are walking in the footsteps of Christ, then your faith is strengthened. The genuineness of your faith is manifest. That's why God allows suffering. Turn over to Matthew chapter 13, he reveals this. Matthew chapter 13, parable of the seed in the soils. Matthew chapter thirteen: The gospel is spread out, and the gospel is sent around, and many receive the gospel. But in particular, you have the seed and the sower explained in Matthew thirteen eighteen and following. And it is the seed that fall, falls on the rocky soil. I want to draw our attention to, particularly verses twenty and twenty one says, the one on whom the seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Verse 21, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And notice, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. The difficulties, the persecutions, the afflictions, the sufferings came to test the quality of the response. And the one fades away. Cannot handle the pressures, the difficulties. Suffering, again, is God's tool. It's used to test our faith. The genuineness of our faith. Like anyone can follow Christ when there's no difficulties. Anyone can follow Christ when it doesn't cost us anything. When you have a comfortable room to come sit in and a nice chair and it's comfortable temperature and it's convenient and the ministry is right by your house and it doesn't cost you anything, it's very easy. I think it's interesting that uh, so many times I've heard people come, so, you know, you just the preaching here is just way too heavy. And I just want to say, have you met Peggy Patterson? Have you met some of the sweet old ladies in our church? It's not too heavy for them. Well, your ministry's too far away. Well, let me show you the people who live way up north or way down south. Those are driving an hour to be in the ministry. Well, the ministry, it's just hard to get connected. Really, have you seen our app and all the needs out there? The way that people are jumping in and helping? I mean, excuse after excuse that goes on to why it can't be involved, and yet God demonstrates richly in His body that the love and faith of God's people is manifest and maturing and growing. Suffering tests our faith, and it proves the genuineness of our faith. So that people coming around and serving across different cultures and different backgrounds and different experiences and perspectives and different generations, all coming together, showing the love of Christ to one another, demonstrates a faith that is not of man but is is of God. That is the work of God. Suffering tests our faith. But secondly, suffering also acts as a catalyst to our faith. Suffering encourages our faith. It is a catalyst. It is like a fertilizer to our faith that causes us to grow and mature. Suffering emboldens our faith. When you face suffering regularly and are mistreated regularly, when someone else comes along, you're like, I've been there before. Uh, you know, my, my personal comfort is not my goal here. The glory of Christ is my goal. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. To stand firm on the truth, to speak up for the truth, encourages and emboldens your faith. I mean, think about yourself in response. How do you respond when you see a servant standing for righteousness? You get emboldened. You get excited for the truth. That's what I love to see over the last couple of years. Pastors with high-profile ministries that took a stand on the truth only excited the church to be more committed to the truth. That's the way it works. Righteousness in the face of difficulty emboldens our faith. But it does more than that. It proves to us we belong to God. Because again, there's no natural reason to face suffering. There's no earthly reason to embrace suffering, but there's every heavenly reason because through suffering we are affirmed by God as fellow heirs, heirs Christ. I love how Paul thought about his suffering. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Let me show you this. Colossians chapter 1. Paul says it like this in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What does Paul say of it? One, I rejoice in it, and I delight in it, because I am building up the church. I'm building up the body of Christ. I am even just taking on what belongs to Christ. My body, it's his perspective. That's great faith in the midst of suffering. What in the world can grow your faith more than suffering? Suffering causes us to depend upon God and his grace. Shows us that we cannot trust in our own selves, our own wisdom, our own resources. We need God's grace. Suffering causes us to hold on to heavenly riches rather than earthly riches. So that when you suffer here on earth, you want this to end and you want the riches of God's glory and his heavenly resources. Suffering causes us to put stock in the grace of God to be revealed at the appearing of Jesus Christ. It causes us to anticipate God's deliverance. Suffering is a source of us rejoicing because we know that God would use that to encourage our faith. Suffering for righteousness, if we were to suffer for righteousness, recognizes that this is God's purpose in our life to shape us and protect us. I I think about this so often as a pastor facing difficulty, recognizing that's exactly what I need to stay in line. I need The ridicule. I need the rejoicing. I'm not inviting that from you, but I'm just saying in my own personal heart, I know that is what I need. God uses that to remind us to stay faithful and to keep striving. And suffering causes us, in the midst of our difficulty, to turn to God's promises and wait on those promises, and then we see Him deliver us. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation is overtaken you but such as common to man, but God is faithful. Will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able to handle, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also. You will not hold on to that promise if you are not going through the very difficulties of suffering. Suffering causes us to hold tightly to those things. Hold loosely to earthly pleasures and comforts. Suffering works, again, to grow and stimulate our faith so we can endure through challenges and difficulties. Those are the advanced points. Let me quickly give you the lesser points, but equally as necessary. Suffering is both necessary and unnecessary. You say, what? Yeah, suffering is both necessary and unnecessary. There's unnecessary suffering. What is unnecessary suffering? Again, 1 Peter 4 and verse 15, do not suffer as an evildoer. Don't walk in unrighteousness. Don't walk in godlessness. Don't move away from God. That is unnecessary suffering. It's suffering we don't need to experience. That's why we tell our kids, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, judgment is coming. You move away from righteousness. You walk in unrighteousness. There is a suffering that comes. It is an unnecessary suffering because we don't need to walk in it. We are born of God. We are slaves of righteousness. We have the Spirit of God ruling within us. We have the wisdom of God given to us through His Word. We have the strength of God that comes by His grace so we can walk in newness of life. We have good work set before us that we can walk in. We have the grace of God lavished upon us. We have the abundant mercies that he has given us. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places to enable us. We do not need to walk in unnecessary suffering by departing from the righteousness of God. But the other side is true. There's a necessary suffering that we need to embrace. The suffering that comes because we're fellow heirs with Christ. And we're following in the footsteps of Christ. And we are walking in his ways. And we simply are completing in ourselves those afflictions that he is lacking. Fifthly, suffering is material and immaterial. How do we suffer? Material and immaterial. That is, we face physical suffering, material, and emotional suffering, immaterial, True suffering, full suffering, is both the internal, mental, emotional distress that also leads to physical distress and and can be accompanied by physical distress. Full suffering, again, can be under the weight of mental distress, but also can be physical suffering as well. So when you understand suffering you need to understand the full picture it is not just physical mistreatment but also can be emotional mental whenever we hear a lie and a lie distresses us we are facing a again a immaterial form of suffering we believe the lies of the world we believe the lies our heart tells us we begin to suffer emotionally but there is also again the physical mistreatment that comes. So when we think about suffering, the full scope of suffering is both material and immaterial. And so when we need to be guarded, we need to guard our hearts and our physical bodies, or we need to prepare our hearts and our bodies for the facing of suffering, difficulty. And then lastly, suffering is the proof of God, that God's wisdom is greater than man's wisdom and understanding. Suffering is the proof that God's ways are greater than our ways. Again, suffering manifests the great wisdom of God, and it acts as a tool of mercy to warn of the consequences of wickedness and a means of grace to supercharge the growth of our faith. When you think about suffering, this is God's mercy and grace to us at the same time. To warn us not to continue in to evil, but also to encourage us to walk uprightly so that we embrace suffering again. We don't seek to avoid it. We don't don't seek to uh, try to have to defend God. God uses this suffering as a tool to demonstrate the riches of His glory. We embrace it. Conclude, just some final statements. Let me conclude like this to summarize all these thoughts. These are just kind of some anchors for you to think about suffering to get a right perspective. Suffering is God's mercy to us to show that wickedness will be punished severely. Suffering is God's grace to the believer to test our faith and encourage our growth. Suffering is the result of moving away from righteousness. Suffering marks the path back to righteousness. Suffering points people to God. Suffering can be internal and external. And suffering itself, again, is God's wisdom richly on display. For the natural man rejects it, but the righteous man embraces it. Now that's just a warm-up to the series for Ecclesia, and I pray you'll come back as we come back on Friday night and begin our conference and just look at the riches of what God has to teach us about this topic. That's a big overview. We'll start jumping into the text starting Friday night. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for these truths. Thank you so much for the way you're at work in our body, growing us and maturing us. So many of your people already have experienced suffering and they've experienced it in the faith, only to see their faith grow, only to see the riches of your grace on display, only to become more emboldened with the truth and more confident in righteousness. We pray you continue to have your perfect work in our midst that when the heart of man is rebelling against you, we can warn them there is impending judgment and suffering is the proof of that. And may they see the glories of Christ and may they turn and embrace Him and find the peace of God ruling and reigning in their hearts. Use this conference and use these truths to sanctify our hearts and minds so that we, again, would grow and demonstrate the glories of God in our midst. Thank you for this time of corporate worship. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.